And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, May 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how the Army conserves 53,000 acres of training territory. Plus, what it takes for a small agency to be a great place to work. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department is hard at work on a cybersecurity strategy known as Zero Trust. That's a challenge for the National Guard. It operates in 54 states and territories, each with a separate culture and way of working. For how the Guard is coping, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with its chief information officer, Kenneth McNeil. It's been pretty successful getting the education of the force, what zero trust means. Because really for us is educating the J6s, uh, cyber professionals out in the states. We're at the early stage. We're at the base. We don't have the, the strategy implemented in total yet, but we're doing the education process. And it is a little unique. You heard me talk about how each state is different, but the strategy that Mr. Resnick put out helps us because it's a enterprise. And we like talking enterprise from the headquarters level because that's, that helps baseline the states. Walk me through it from step one. How, how did you actually do this? <laughs> well, I mean, it's just getting the strategy out to the states and say, hey, look, you have to read this. This doesn't mean that you're going to not be interoperable with your civilian partners that you have to communicate with and share data with in the states. And so once the states read that document and come back and say, okay, this, these are some things that we have to do with our non-government partners, that is the start. And, and, and so, like I said, it's the base. We're not implementing zero trust total. I want to paint that picture but we're, we're at least getting the education piece out right now from an enterprise perspective. And so reading a document can mean different things to different people. Yeah. H- how are you going to standardize the education it, and ensure the quality? So it'll be an enterprise education. Um, so we will lead that from the headquarters. And based on the DOD instructions that they're working right now, we'll use that. And then we'll kind of cater it to the guard community and kind of fit it where it fits in about footprint. Because a lot of the education right now is probably Title X, the services, but then we have to put the homeland mission spin on it for our mission here in the homeland. First is, is trust. Like, okay, I went from communicating with civilian first responders or passing data with civilian first responders, really not having to worry about security of data or who's on the other end. Just educating them on the threat. That's number one. Hey, it, it, it's different now. The adversary, you may be supporting a wildfire or a hurricane, but that doesn't mean that the adversary can't get into the network and cause bigger problems at the enterprise level, at the Doden level. And so that is how we're starting the education process, where we're changing the culture to say, okay, this is pretty important, even though it's a domestic operation and it's not overseas war fighting. The network is the network, period. And so is that education piece that we're doing right now. Is it sometimes a hard sell? 
Absolutely, because the first thing is how, how I'm going to communicate with the first responders in my community. How am I going to communicate with the state-level organizations that I need to communicate with that is not DOD? It's, we're, we're getting through, but it's a constant education and then showing the trust of why this is important. How do you train your team to go out there and, and get that message out in a way that resonates with the different communities? Well, you know, I, I can't take credit for that because the DOD obviously have, with Mr. Resnick mentioned, classes and, and instruction. So we use what we have. We don't have to recreate anything in the National Guard and say, well, we're a little. We just take that instructions and then cater it to a state versus what we're trying to do maybe in a Title 10 or, uh, you know, or, or overseas um, mission. You mentioned when you were talking the interoperability part. Maybe tell me a little bit more about that and some of the challenges with that. Interoperability is key, just like it's key for overseas with our partners and allies, is key in the homeland. Because if I can't connect and pass information and data with civilian first responder, whether it's fire, police, whoever, I can't support the mission. And January 6th was a perfect example. A number of of law enforcement agencies, first responders, 27,000 guardsmen in the District of Columbia supporting that mission for a few months. And so when we talk interoperability, that's, that's what I mean. Being able to connect with the numerous agencies at the lower level all the way up to the federal level and be comfortable and with passing trusted data and secure data. If you really batten down the hatches on zero trust, does that hurt your interoperability? No, absolutely not. So, again, we've had to educate, and, and, and I, I give Mr. Resnick a lot of credit. I mean, he and I had this conversation as the strategy was being written. I said, hey, you know, from a guard perspective, it's us continuing to educate down at the state level. So my staff at the headquarters, National Guard Bureau headquarters, making sure that the states hear, read, and understand the interoperability piece. And that's going to be key. And then the states will work with their local partners. And so it's a train-the-trainer, as we like to say. We're going to train the guard community. And in the state level, they're going to then educate their partners. This is why we need to do this. This is how we connect. When you have people who aren't necessarily full-time attention on you, does that make that harder? Is there a lack of retention in, in what they need to do and what they need to learn? No, absolutely not. Because we do have a, it's not as large as the active foot, but we do have a full-time workforce in each state, even though most of our guardsmen are traditional. But we do have a workforce that are full-time that does IT, cyber, every single day in the state. I don't think having a traditional you know, the traditional force of the National Guard, it's any other, it's any challenge in this mission space. Is there any difference between what you're seeing and trying to work with the Army versus the Air Force on this? Each service gets at it a little different. As you heard me say, we're made up of two services. Because of how we made up, we're used to bringing services together. That is a lot of my job, making sure that 
the CIO for the Air Force and the CIO for the Army. We're all talking on one one sheet of music and constantly educating them who have been tremendous partners for the National Guard on our domestic mission space and how we bring it together. They talk a lot in, in Zero Trust about guarding the perimeter and then guarding the interior. Well, with so many different working parts and so many different cultures, is it more porous in the National Guard? No, I mean, we're, we're kind of unique just because how we communicate, but we're so used to it, it's, it's not like a new challenge. We've been doing this since 1636 from some aspect, right? So it's natural for us. Kenneth McNeil, National Guard Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what it takes for a small agency to be a great place to work. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Selective Service System collects names on behalf of a place few Americans choose to work, actually. Yet the Selective Service itself ranked in the top 10 of best places to work among small agencies in the latest list. What's the secret? Joining me in studio is the acting director of the Selective Service System, Joel Spangenberg. Good to have you in. Hey, good afternoon. And you did choose that area as a retired naval officer, so you have been on the other end of the whole thing, too, which the Selective Service serves. That's correct. I served in the Navy and, uh, you know, as a part of the all-volunteer force, and it's really an honor and a pleasure to continue serving the country. Yeah, that's kind of an irony because everyone has to register legally, all males in the United States, when they reach the age of 18. And that is your job at the Selective Service for something that is unlikely to even happen. And so I would think that would mitigate against that being a good place to work. So tell us how you bridge that gap between seeming to do something that doesn't matter perhaps, yet it's a a compelling place to work. Right. Well, first off, uh, maybe I could tell you a little bit about who we are and what we do as Selective Service, and I'll give you a sense of, uh, I think, the excitement we generate amongst the employees. First off, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with so many incredible people at the Selective Service System. I'm very proud of our workforce. Their dedication and commitment are on display every day, and I'm happy to be part of such a great team. How many are there, by the way? So right now we have 300 total compensated personnel. Uh, We have about 120 full-time employees, up to 57 part-time appointed state directors, over 100 reserve service members from the military services. So that's part of the picture. But we also have the unique aspect of our agency, which allows us to have volunteers. And we actually have over 9,000 volunteers, uh, principally local board members and district appeal board members nationwide. So we have a pretty decent size for being a small agency. And again, the irony, you know, of all the people that might have been militarily connected with the agency now, none of them were ever drafted. I mean, it's 50 years ago. That's correct. I believe what makes it really interesting for us is that people see the enduring nature of what we do. And, you know, we had started as an independent agency with our roots over 100 years ago. 
And we've been a part of American history since then, during peacetime and during times of conflict. Ultimately, we support the national defense community, and people are quite proud of that mission. So we do see ourselves as serving a critical role in ensuring that the nation's military personnel needs are met in the times of national emergency and staying prepared to support that need. All right. And operationally, what happens throughout the year? Throughout the year, I'd say one of the biggest things that people really do see, it's registration. Like you mentioned before, young men are required to register for selective service system, and that's the most visible aspect of what we do. But you know, within the agency, we also have to make sure we stay ready, and that's really a, a central tenant that runs through everything that's required of us. So that means we have to be good on our planning, we have to do exercises, and we have to work with our partners to make sure that we stay ready. In other words, in a God-forbid situation for the nation, people might have to be called up. I mean, it's a slim potential, at least for the last number of years, 50 years or so, but it's not impossible. That's correct. It's not impossible. And going back many, many years, there's been bipartisan consensus on keeping this agency as part of a national insurance capability because we never know what tomorrow will bring. And, you know, we absolutely do not want to be caught flat-footed. So that is uh, that drives a lot of the passion in the agency to make sure that we stay ready to protect the country if and when called. And it comes up in Congress from time to time but never seems to quite be enacted is the idea of women being required to register. Yet, do you maintain the, I guess, unused apparatus? Should that happen? That actually is a very hot question. In fact, most recently, there was interest in this during the FY23 development of the Senate's version of the National Defense Authorization Act. There was a provision that would include women. Ultimately, it was not included in the final legislation, but we monitor that very closely. So ultimately, it's up to Congress to decide. It's a law. But if the law were to change, select a service system, as I said, we remain ready. We would work to implement uh, whatever changes were needed. So I think we're in a good position there, whatever direction we need to go. We are speaking with Joel Spangenberg. He's acting director of the Selective Service System and also a retired Navy officer. What is the mechanism? What's the apparatus? You must have tentacles into all of the states and territories' databases of people. How does that work? Actually, I think you're very correct in saying we do have a lot of great relationships with the states. So, select That's a better word than tentacles. Yeah. Uh, we have, for instance, if we take a step back, we just can't do it all alone from uh, the federal government. We have to work with partners at the state level especially. So intergovernmental partnerships are very important. So we work with governor's offices, the National Guard across the country. We've even developed relationships working with the Department of the Interior to build relationships with tribal partners, even through our state directors in some states. So that builds into our readiness, that builds into registration. So like I said, it's a team effort, but it's also we work across the federal government. We work with partners, including the Department of Defense. That's a big one for us, the Office of Personnel Management. Even with AmeriCorps, as we look at potential opportunities to build partnership around concepts of national service. And are there any connections between the work that you're doing and the recruitment efforts? I mean, the military services have had some challenges there for a variety of reasons of getting people just to volunteer. You know everyone that could volunteer. Some of them are not useful to the military, given weight or whatever background conditions might have happened to them. But is there any relationship? Is there anything that you can offer that helps the armed services do their recruiting? 
Absolutely. And I think that's a good opportunity to pause. I mean, this year is the 50th anniversary of the All-Volunteer Force. And having served in the All-Volunteer Force, I'm extremely proud of that. And I love what that force can do. And I love that Selective Service System has, since uh, 2001, had an agreement in place with the Department of Defense to help support recruitment for the all-volunteer force. Principally, this is seen in us enclosing a brochure and registration acknowledgement letters that go to young men. So that's an example of something that helps Department of Defense, and they really appreciate it. And there are other organizations that are interested in working with us in that way, too, to help boost awareness about national service opportunities, because building that service ethos is really important for the federal government and for the nation. Do you track the rates of registration? Because universal registration is required. Do some areas produce higher voluntary turnout, let's say, than others? Yes. Right now, for 18 to 25-year-olds nationally, uh, based on the latest data, which was from calendar year 2022, we are at an 84% registration rate. That's unfortunately a little bit down from uh, calendar year 20, where we were at 89%. But the team has been working proactively to do things to try to work to get the the rates up. But we also have to be responsive to uh, things like, for instance, there was uh, some federal legislation passed in 2020, the FAFSA Simplification Act, that delinked the registration requirement from federal student aid. So that actually passed in 2020 and the implementation went through 2022. So we saw the impact. We're feeling it. We think we're going to feel it more, but we are doing our best to counter that. So for instance, the team is working to work with influencers because we know people like coaches, high school counselors, they matter in helping to get the word out to young men about registration. And you know, this goes back to something you had mentioned earlier about working with partners nationally. One thing that we have in place is we have driver's license legislation in 46 states and territories. That is extremely helpful for us. And what that means is when a young man gets a driver's license or an identification card, for instance, they get registered or they have the opportunity to opt in to getting registered. So that's really helpful. So we're looking to build on that. So that builds on those partnerships as well. So we're looking for ways to continue to do it. And even here in D.C., I can tell you quite proudly, the D.C. mayor last year signed into law legislation that would actually help boost awareness in D.C. of the registration requirement. And D.C. has had the worst registration requirement in the country among states and territories. So it's great to see partners there trying to find ways to help ensure young men know about registration so they don't miss out on very valuable federal benefits that can help them in life, both personally or professionally. And that that's really, I think, a key message. We all want to see people have their futures protected, and we also want to make sure people follow the law so this country can yeah, be ready. Yeah, there's that also, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but in some level, you are also fighting demographics. You mentioned driver's licenses in some of the coastal and urban areas, in affluent areas, maybe in some of the suburban areas. They don't even feel like they want licenses compared to your generation or much older, my generation, where you were sitting behind the wheel at 15 and a half trying to not be noticed. But now, you know, fewer people are driving cars at that age. 
That's actually a challenge, but I will say one thing that the agency has done well in recent years to do is to find ways to get more into social media, to meet young men where they really are, too. So not only are we trying to connect with influencers, but also we know young people like to be on their smartphones and they have their different uh, apps. So we like to try to connect with them that way. So, you know, even though we might have a challenge with licenses, we're still going to look for ways to help inform young men and their influencers the best we can. All right. And you were, again, as we said at the top, among the top 10 small agencies, best places to work. What do you do to ensure that happens? I think one of the key things I would just kind of take away from this is, you know, Selective Service does well because it really does care for its people. And we've created a respectful and inclusive culture in the agency. So I think that mission was something that's really important, but I think the culture is also something that's really set in and made a very positive difference. So some examples, um, our leaders at every level keep morale high by leading by example. Employees also feel very recognized for their talents. And these are results we saw in the Best Places to Work survey as areas that really stood out. Uh, the team has also done a great job of caring for the well-being of its employees. And this is something we talk about. We even have had an integrated project team that focused on quality of life. And I think that was very meaningful for people. So we're bringing teammates together from across the agency to find ways to improve. And this continues. So we are actually continuing to focus on improving, uh, looking at the FEVs and best places to work results to help motivate us and drive us to be our best. So in recent months, we had an employee team actually look at the FEVs results and help identify recommendations that went into an action plan that we are working to implement in the agency so people know that we are committed to this. And I said that compelling mission makes a difference. And, you know, we've emphasized readiness, registration, and management excellence very heavily in recent months. And as we modernize our capabilities, we also always work to make sure people know that everybody, no matter where they sit, what they do, they are connected to the mission, and we need everybody to make sure we're successful. So obviously we have our eyes on continuing to move forward, but I'm very proud of the team and what they've done. And just a quick question between your naval career and coming to the Selective Service, what did you do? Oh, I actually uh, spent a, a large amount of my career in public service. So I worked as a professional staff member on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee staff. I worked in the Obama administration at the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I'd been the chief of staff at Selective Service System as well for three years, and I spent a little time in the private sector as a management consultant. And I'm one of these uh, people that's had a career both on the political side and the career side. I worked at Naval Reactors. Uh, National Nuclear Security Administration, and I was also the first ever executive director of operations at the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board. So public service has meant so much to me. I've learned so many lessons about how important policy is, implementation is, but ultimately how important people are and how meaningful, very caring leadership is to the whole process. Joel Spangenberg is acting director of the Selective Service System and a retired Navy officer, among other things. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for letting me join you today. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Draft the Federal Drive onto your device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the administration's new telework guidance is far from perfect. But first, how the Army conserves 53,000 acres of training territory. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Camp Ripley is a 53,000-acre civilian and military training facility operated by the Minnesota National Guard. Keeping it up and maintaining it is no trivial matter. But Josh Pennington, the base's environmental supervisor, is up to the task. He and his team were among winners of the 2023 Secretary of Defense Environmental Awards. To learn more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Pennington. Camp Ripley is a 53,000-acre training center, and it's comprised of about 30,000 acres of forests and other what we call grasslands and training sites, everything from maneuver lanes to artillery firing points to larger range complexes. My team is made up of two components. One is the environmental conservation program, and the other is the integrated training area management program. So we have 11 personnel in total, and it's our responsibility is to manage the training lands in a sustainable way that do two things. One, facilitates military training and prevents the military from degrading the natural resources that we're entrusted with, and then also preventing natural resources from impeding on military training. So ensuring things like threatened and endangered species don't lead to regulatory constraints that would then impede the military's ability to use these sites for training. Yeah, what are the biggest risks from military training that are present to the land as far as, you know, threatening any species of animal or uh, other biological forces in work? Sure. So Camp Ripley is geographically located at the convergence of three ecological provinces, We have 18 miles of the Mississippi River and nine miles of the Crow Wing River. That confluence is uh, kind of an important place ecologically. So we've got a lot of biodiversity on site. And what we've been able to demonstrate is that the military training does not have a negative impact on many of these species that call it home. We have everything from larger mammals, such as gray wolves and black bears. We have healthy populations of both, down to federally endangered species, such as the northern long-eared bat. And then a lot of pollinators that we refer to as at-risk species that are petitioned to be a federally endangered species, such as uh, monarch and Blanding's turtles and rusty patch bumblebee and, and all these things. And so finding that delicate balance of being able to manage for these species and provide the military training is kind of where uh, we are really successful. Gotcha. And that provides a perfect lead in into my next question of what looks like success in your eyes and what does it look like when that balance is perfectly achieved? Is it just the military is able to do whatever they want and also just have zero effect on the wildland or is that just going too far and, you know, there's always going to be one side affecting the other? Well, there's always going to be some level of impact. And and I think where we find the most success is through our integration efforts and and synchronizing our efforts with the conservation values of the landscape. So a perfect example of that is on our larger maneuver lanes where there is maneuver damage. You know, we're providing soldiers with the critical training they need so that when they're called upon for our nation's worst day, they've, they've got the training and the confidence they need on the equipment that they're using. So in the event that they do have any kind of large land disturbance areas, we are kind of the housekeepers. We go back, we regrade the area, we reseed it, and we make it sustainable so that for the next units coming in, that land is of perfect training value. And we do that in a way that has a lot of ecological value. So we use all the uh, native plants and all of our restoration efforts. We do a lot of our seed harvesting on site which saves the government thousands of dollars by not having to go out and purchase seed for these locations. And it's also a good locally ecological sink for seeds so that the, uh, the plants are grown right here. And for the animals that you mentioned earlier, is there trap and release efforts going on or what other uh, ideas are there behind uh, making sure that those endangered species don't come into contact with any of the military training going on? 
Yeah, so we have a very proactive program here that's integrated with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Department of Natural Resources, and we do a lot of surveys. So all those surveys provide the critical data that we need to assess what habitats these species are using. We overlay that with all the military training, and then we find that common ground. And so we have cooperative agreements established with both of these agencies that helps us study these animals, especially species like the northern long-eared bat. And we set timing on certain training areas for usage. So when we know that the bat is roosting and has maternity roosts where they're giving birth to pups, they may be impacted by certain activities. And so we're able to buffer those activities without completely restricting military training, but just working together to find areas that they can train while these other areas are temporarily closed. You mentioned the DNR and other natural wildlife that you coordinate with. Um, Are there any other agencies that you do work with to maintain the area around the base? Absolutely. And and I think one of the reasons, if you notice that Camp Ripley was selected as the winner of both the Department of Defense and the Secretary of the Army Environmental Award for Natural Resource Conservation. Personally, I think one of the reasons for that is our level of integration and use of partnerships to facilitate common interests. It would take all day to sit here and list all the partnerships we have. Uh, we are one of 10 federally designated sentinel landscapes in the entire country. A sentinel landscape is a large landscape anchored by a military base that prioritizes the resources from the USDA and Department of Interior and the Department of Defense to essentially do just that, prioritize our resources into a common landscape to do the greater good. So we have partnerships with agencies such as NRCS, the National Association of Conservation Districts, our Soil and Water Conservation Districts, our Board of Water and Soil Resources. A lot of great work that's going on both within the fence of Camp Ripley, but also outside the fence. One example of work outside the fence is the Natural Resource Conservation Service, the NRCS. They wanted to do more forest stewardship activities within the sentinel landscape around Camp Ripley. And and a lot of this is like writing burn plans for prescribed fire to do wildfire mitigation efforts. But they didn't have a location to staff a full-time forester. So Camp Ripley was able to partner with this organization. They provide the staff member. We provide the office and supervisory support. And so we host a private land forester on the installation, and he doesn't do any work on the installation. He's housed out of here, but all of his work is with private landowners surrounding Camp Ripley. Got it. We're speaking with Joshua Pennington, environmental supervisor for Camp Ripley in Minnesota. And I know you have a lot to worry about with your own 53,000 acres, but I am curious, where does Camp Ripley stand in comparison to other bases? Are there any other bases that are this biodiverse and have this kind of, I I imagine there are larger ones, but has this sort of land that has to be maintained like this? You know, absolutely. And we're we're pretty humbled to be receiving the recognition at the DOD level because there are a lot of installations out there across all services that are doing incredible work in the uh, conservation natural resource field. And this across the country, Air Force, Army, National Guard, Marines, they all have different installations with natural resource personnel, with partnerships, and, and they're all doing wonderful things. Is there any bragging going on between you and your uh, counterparts at other bases? or? <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what keeps it fun. Right. But we also learn from each other a lot, too. And so I'll travel to colleagues that work at other installations in Florida, for example. And while Florida and Minnesota have a lot of differences, there are areas where we can learn from them and and adopt a lot of their practices. And so we've done that uh, to different scales. And and yeah, there's always always a lot to be learned. There's conferences throughout the year where we are able to get together with our colleagues from other installations and other services and, and learn from one another. 
and, and you know, we've, we've actually obtained federal agency partners based off work from other installations that they kind of did the groundwork for. Gotcha. Anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important for the conversation? I just think that it's probably not well understood the amount of uh, conservation work that goes on across military installations. Uh, The Department of Defense manages 25 million acres across the country and um, everything from climate resiliency projects to uh, threatened and endangered species conservation. There's a lot of really great work going on. Josh Pennington, environmental supervisor at Camp Ripley in Little Falls, Minnesota, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the administration's new telework guidance is far from perfect. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Guidance from the White House a couple of weeks ago seeks to get more federal employees back to their offices. It's a big data-gathering exercise, and my next guest says it's got some problems. Bob Tobias is a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University, and he joins me now. And Bob, I'm getting the sense you think that that's not such a worthy goal in and of itself, simply to get more fannies in federally funded seats. Now, if you're a landlord or a restaurant owner in a city where there are a lot of federal employees, you want more fannies in the seats. But if you're a taxpayer, you don't care whether fannies are in the seats. You care whether federal employees are actually delivering the public service that you want and that you demand. And we know that 60% of the federal employees working at home during the max telework period during the pandemic delivered the same or better public service than they delivered while they were in person before the pandemic. And we know that federal employees prefer their current work situation of primarily working from home. So if they are required to come into the workplace, I believe that they'll have less motivation and deliver less public service than they're delivering today. And we also know that collecting data about whether public service is declining takes six months or a year. And if, in fact, it's true that public service will decline, the damage will have been done too late to fix it. Well, let's talk about the three criteria that the Office of Management and Budget laid out for this, because it sounds like you have different goals here that aren't totally compatible to try to somehow balance in the analysis they're asking agencies to do. So they're asking agencies to balance organizational health and work environment, organizational performance, and community needs. So the first two are really about organizational performance. So if I'm going to deliver more organizational performance based on what's happened in the past, I have to have people working from home. If I'm going to focus on community needs, I have to have more people in person. Right. And that idea of organizational health and the work environment, those are fuzzy words. I guess you can look at the best places to work scores. You can look at the turnover. You can look at the rate at which you can fill open positions and how long that takes. Is that the kind of thing you sense they mean by organizational health? I do. I think really organizational health and organizational performance are really linked. If organizational health is good, the scores are going up, turnover is down, then 
organizational performance will indeed be increased. And we also know, Tom, that the federal government is having a real tough time recruiting Gen Z and retaining Gen X employees, the people who are really at the highest levels of the career service. So for example, Gen Z, who were born between 1997 and 2012, and they're just entering the workplace, 9.1% of the total workforce are Gen Zs, but only 1.7% of the federal workforce. And then once we get these Gen Zs on the federal payrolls, they leave at a 12.4% turnover rate, and the rest of the turnover is 6.7%. So it's hard to recruit them, hard to keep them. And a recent report by the Partnership for Public Service say these folks, more than any other people in the workplace, want to be in person. So if we can't advertise that these jobs are hybrid jobs and must be in person, we're not going to be able to get these folks into the workplace, and we desperately need them. We're speaking with Bob Tobias, professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. It seems like the workforce is bifurcating into people that have to be in the field, law enforcement folks and zookeepers and you name it, agricultural service agents and so on. And then there are those who had been in the office for decades and now don't need to be in the office because of the technology in place that lets people work remotely. And is that a danger, having two workforces, one never in the office and one always in the quote-unquote office or field location? I don't think it's a problem. If we focus on service to the public and organizing the workplace in a way that maximizes service to the public, And what I think with this new policy from the Biden administration, we increase the risk of decreasing public service, which ought be the focus of any president of the United States. For people that came to work in government or anywhere else during the pandemic and never really got to the office, and maybe you're only getting there part-time now, do you think that we're doing a disservice to that Generation Z? They think they know what they want, but they're still kind of young and stupid and don't know the value of connections with colleagues older and younger and the same age and the value that that kind of connection can generate and the kind of collaboration that can happen in person. Do you think we owe them a little bit more than simply caving into the fact that they don't want to come to an office? I'm playing devil's advocate here. (laughs) You know, I think it is important that the people who work together ought to have connections with each other. But that ought to be a focus of a supervisor or higher level agency officials. And that can be done consciously and intentionally with infrequent office visits. As opposed to before the pandemic, it was random. And sometimes it happened for some people, and sometimes it didn't happen for some people. So this might be an opportunity to really focus on the importance of making connections and consciously do it rather than relying on random connections. And that's true, too, because sometimes the random connections are terrible. People can bore you to death or distract you or eat sardines next to you and this kind of thing. So there's that kind of Dilbert office effect that nobody wants, I guess. That's exactly right. So a more intentional workplace in terms of creating connections, a more intentional workplace focusing on delivery of public service is what we really want. And do you think that this policy just came out because the 
pressure was on the administration to do something because they've got cities, they've got mayors, they've got business groups saying, get your people back and occupy those buildings. But they can't really find a good justification for forcing that for a variety of reasons. It's not, as you say, great for the workforce. And the work was getting done just fine, maybe better in some cases, because of the mass telework. Well, my hope is that people who lead federal employees will discover and say that their focus must be on delivering service. And there's certainly ways to do that. And I hope that's how it finally shakes out. Yeah, because the real estate is a funny question. I was in San Francisco a couple weekends ago, and the biggest building there now is the Salesforce Tower. It just has changed the skyline that we traditionally remember about San Francisco. And that building, I think, is almost totally empty because the company with the name on the skyline has moved out. And so you've got this phenomenon in cities. You do. And I think the latest statistics I saw that both Washington, D.C. and San Francisco have about a 50 percent in-person occupancy rate, the lowest of any cities in the country. So certainly it is a problem for real estate agents and owners and for small business restaurants. But for the rest of the taxpayers, I think the decision is clear, and that is to have a highly motivated federal workforce. Bob Tobias is a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. In one fell swoop, the Court of Federal Claims upended two major government-wide acquisition contracts from the General Services Administration. With it went nearly five years of effort to change the culture of federal contracting. The court ruled that GSA's decision not to use price as an evaluation factor for the Polaris small business contract was inappropriate. This decision also threw a wrench into the Oasis Plus acquisition strategy. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me now with more on the story. Jason, let's start with the court ruling in the protest of Polaris Small Business GWAC. What exactly was this all about? There's two focus areas in the protest, and this was a protest by a company called SH Synergy and VH. VCH Partners. They are a joint venture. They're a mentor-protege. They did a couple areas. First, they protested the mentor-protege joint venture requirements that GSA outlined. And in fact, the court ruled some, some for them, some against them. This has been a common problem across several different multiple award government-wide acquisition type contracts. And I'm actually not going to go too far into it, Tom. Folks can read the entire 75-page decision by the Court of Federal Claims on federalnewsnetwork.com. What they also protested, however, was the use of something called the Section 876 Authority. This is something Congress gave GSA in 2018 in the Defense Authorization Bill that lets GSA not have price as an evaluation factor for these large multiple war contracts. I wrote about this. A lot of folks talked about this. This was a celebration of effort of multiple years from industry and government to really change the way agencies do government-wide acquisition contract and government-wide multiple award contracts like Oasis Plus, like Polaris. Right. That was really a modernization because these are dynamic contracts and they are task order-based and therefore some fixed price for the duration made no sense. Or even this idea of what's going to cost you to do this service today may not cost you tomorrow to do the same service. And really, the, the importance here is price at the task order level. That's where the, the rubber hits the road. And what the court said was GSA's interpretation of this law was too broad. And the way they applied it to the Polaris contract was too broad. The 
basically they said Congress said you can only use this authority when you're looking at task orders or contracts that are really based on hourly rates. So we're talking about labor hour type contracts, time and material type contracts, even cost reimbursement type contracts. But, and this is key here, not firm fixed price contracts. And GSA was allowing under OASIS and under Polaris specifically to use firm fixed price contracts and task orders. And the court said, no, that's too far. We're not, you can't do that. So what this ended up doing was the court said to GSA, you, you cannot make awards under Polaris. You cannot move forward until you fix this piece of Polaris. They also talked about some, again, mental protege fixes that are needed too. So does that suspend Polaris then? What comes next? GSA cannot make awards under Polaris. Period. So that just stops right there. GSA has got to take corrective action. What that corrective action is going to look like is unclear. They just got the decision was released by the Court of Federal Claims in the last week or so. So they're still kind of okay, what does this mean? How does this work? How do we go forward? I've talked to several procurement experts and they say this is really bad for Polaris. Emily Murphy, the former GSA administrator, uh, procurement expert, told me, if you think about what happened with the Alliance small business contract, the, what Polaris was trying to replace, that got upheld by similar protests, not on the use of 876, but just generally. And eventually GSA, and she had to make that decision to cancel Alliance small business because the time it took. If you look at the same timeline, Polaris is starting to reach some some long legs here. It's, yeah. They started in 2018. They released the RFP in 2022. By the time they fix this, it could be 2024. At what point does the Polaris contract go, oh, this just doesn't meet our needs anymore? Sure. And that would mean eight years without a small business, broad-based small business GUAC. Well, could GSA appeal on the grounds of 876 is what Congress intended? And there's nothing in the language that says you shall not necessarily use price evaluation, except in this type of deal. That wasn't in the 876 language. The court actually ruled that that Congress was very specific in that 876 language, and that's why it's based on hourly rates. And I think that's the key phrase here. And GSA doesn't argue that. But what they are arguing, and and again, in the court decision, they'll do this much better. Lawyers can do this much better than I will. (laughs) They, They do talk about this idea that under a firm fixed price task order type contract, there are hourly rates pieces. Sure. Because you're understanding, okay, I'm buying this person. There's a reason for the price. For so long, right. We think this project will take 20 hours or 40 hours at this rate, and this here's how we're getting to our firm fixed price. The court said, no, that's not what they mean. So GSA is, is right now where to go next with Polaris, how to fix it. And this has a snowball effect to the Oasis Plus contract. In fact, Tiffany Hickson, who is leading the Oasis effort, spoke at the Coalition for Government Procurement contract just the other day, and she said, we have to add price as an evaluation factor to Oasis Plus. That's actually going to delay the RF, the final RFP. So they, she was hoping to get it out at the end of April, early May. Now she's saying it could be another month or more. And it's also going to change the way they do evaluations more broadly because they were using that self-scoring system and now price is a factor. Tom, I think that's the bigger issue here. Not that Polaris is delayed. That's a bad thing for sure. Not that Oasis has to change their, their strategy. There's a snowball effect more broadly across the entire acquisition community because of this rolling. So people see it as a sea change. Absolutely, it's a sea change and not a good one at that. Uh, in fact, I talked to Eric Crucius, a procurement lawyer at Holland Knight, and he said, listen, on one hand, I love the fact that this judge was very bold. On the other hand, this judge's boldness is causing major waves in the procurement community that is going to really have a big effect on every agency, uh, every contract, whether, again, it's Oasis Plus or could be NITAC's future contracts. It could be Soup6, who's planning to take a very similar approach around not using price as a valuation factor. All these contracts will now be changed. I also spoke with Mike Pullen, a vice president of CGI Federal for Strategic Operations, and he said, listen, 
this just doesn't make sense because we've the industry, the government has really pushed hard not to have price at the task order level. And the, the long-term effect is higher costs to bid, more time it takes to do evaluations. And in the end, they're not getting anything better because of having to use price as a valuation factor. And it's interesting that this lawyer, this company, decided to make this case when no other lawyer slash company protested this through Astro, which is a contract GSA used 876 first for, and now most of Polaris. So it's interesting that they went down this path. And what's even more fascinating, Tom, is that, <laughs> and this is what Emily Murphy pointed this out, the company who protested may not even get on now, even though they won their protest. Right. They could just be losing out on other factors besides that uh, particular objection. They're causing objection. big, big challenges and big heartache now across the entire acquisition community. Well, do people think there's a statutory fix? Could they rewrite 876 in the next round of the NDAA and say, no, we meant to have fixed price contracts as part of this non-evaluation factor? That is the most logical way to get past this. Now, will Congress cooperate? The NDAA is going to be marked up at the end of May. It's short time. You have to get four committees to agree to this, both the House and Senate's Armed Services Committees, as well as the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, as well as the Senate Government Affairs Homeland Security Committee. And I think Emily Murphy, who worked on the Hill for several years and helped you know, develop these types of provisions, says that's going to be a tough haul. And GSA has got to write the legislative proposal on top of it to get it to them. So she says, yes, that would be an easy technical, an easy, quote unquote, technical amendment. Whether it can happen in this short period of time is unclear. And in the meantime, GSA has got to move forward with Oasis, got to move forward with Polaris and to the detriment of the broader small business community. Yeah, some real sand in the gears in the meantime. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. As always, your encyclopedic knowledge of the details is what drives us all here. Be sure to check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 